This is On Target, a look at politics, crime, education, what's happening in Newfoundland and Labrador with the people who know. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your On Target host, Linda Swain. Good afternoon, everyone. I trust you're having a great day. Well, Doctors Without Borders has begun its door-to-door fundraising canvas of the St. John's area this week. Doctors Without Borders, or Médecins Sans Frontières, has helped millions of people all over the world in areas devastated by war, disease, and disaster since it was established back in 1971. It relies heavily, of course, on public support to send medical expertise to help save lives and help people suffering through illness and injury. Right now, now all eyes are on Ukraine, but Doctors Without Borders has dedicated professionals giving of their time on the ground in countries right around the world. Well, my guests today are Executive Director with Doctors Without Borders in Canada, Joe Bellivo. Hello, Joe. Hi, Linda. And Acquisition Manager, Vivienne Chartrand. Hello, Vivienne. Hi. Hi. Um, so I guess, uh, Joe, and you'll forgive me because I almost called you Jean Bellivo. <laughs> <laughs> um, I know the reference. Yep. Yeah. As a as a as a Canadian's fan, uh, Joe Bellivo, what is uh, Doctors Without Borders for our audience who may not know? Well, I guess you know the simplest way I think to describe describe the MSF or Doctors Without Borders is that uh, we're a medical aid, humanitarian medical aid organization, emergency first responder type of organization, uh, you know, that, that goes, our, our effort is to go where others don't go and to fill healthcare gaps that others are not or, or cannot fill. That's basically what we do. So these are some of the hardest hit areas of the world. That's right. So, you know, we end up uh, about half of our operations were in, uh, I think it's 88 different countries around the world right now. About half of those are in active conflict zones, such as the, the Ukraine or, uh, or South Sudan or, or the Congo, um, or either active conflicts or politically unstable uh, environments. Uh, so, yeah, you know, we, we find ourselves in uh, areas where there's repression, where there's severe uh, resource limitations, and where there's active fighting. And is it for that reason that it was formed? Is it because those were the kinds of places that people would normally say, mm, I'm not going there, it's far too dangerous? Yeah, that's right. And, uh, you know, it was it was sort of formed um, in 1971, so 50 years ago, on, on this basis, you know, this notion of sans frontières or without borders. So on the notion that regardless of who you are or where you are, uh, you are deserving of, of health care and, and medical attention. Uh, and so and, and with a willingness from those those first doctors and uh, uh, support personnel to to take risks and, and to go places, um, even if they weren't necessarily allowed or welcomed uh, or even if uh, even if it was dangerous uh, to take those risks and to go to those places. And I think that spirit uh, is very, very much alive all these years later. So incredibly dangerous work, but fulfilling, I would imagine. Yeah, it really is. Um, I, you know, yeah, I, I think just about every, there's 65,000 or so employees. Like, it's really grown a lot since those early days in the early 70s. Um, you know, time and again, when I'm visiting our, our field locations or, uh, you know, talking to colleagues around the world, I think that that sense of, 
you know, being a part of something that's really meaningful just, just really shines through. But, you know, the other side of humanitarian action is that constant nagging sense of frustration um, that these these crises still pop up time and time again, and that as a humanitarian actor, you can't fix the underlying political cause of these crises. What you can do is reach out to somebody in their hour of need and hopefully provide some measure of care and support and solidarity. So the people involved must be really driven. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think... uh, (laughs) Uh, you know, it's not really the pay that draws people to a humanitarian organization. It's, it's, it's that drive and that, that commitment and that spirit, definitely. So, uh, Vivienne, how do you set your priorities? How do you know where are the places that we need to be? Um, I mean, that's a really good question, Linda. And I think probably a, a better one for Joe to speak to from a from an operational perspective. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think uh, yeah, generally speaking, and, and when we're fundraising, we're we're, we're thinking about wherever needs are greatest. And I think that that's sort of the, the compelling, um, yeah, the compelling offer for people is that MSF is responding generally um, where 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 people need it um, and in, in a way that, that allows us to, to flexibly act where, where we can and where we need it. And yeah, I don't know, Joe, if you want to add, add to that. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the, the key is really, and, um, you know, that's, it's great to see our teams back on the streets in St. John's and in, in Newfoundland, you know, because the, the key is really the, the individual donors that give to MSF on the basis of trust and the belief in our credibility that we're going to make those choices. So, you know, I, resources are limited. We have a certain uh, kind of pie, uh, financial pie, and then we have to make those choices, as you're saying, Linda, like where do we go, where do we not go? And because we have that, that funding source, so it's over 96% of our funding comes from individual uh, people, uh, you know, uh, because we have that financial independence, we're able to act quickly and we're able to make the choices about who needs the, the assistance the most in the world, not based on any political calculation or not based on a government's foreign policy or an institution's uh, thematic preferences. We're really able to make those choices solely on the basis of who needs that aid the most. Right, and you already have uh, people dispersed around the world doing uh, good work in dangerous places, and then February 24th happened. How did you have to reset your priorities then? Well, yeah, so, you, I mean, Ukraine has, has pretty rapidly become one of our largest uh, re- uh, operational response interventions, not, not surprisingly. So we, you know, the conflict in the Ukraine has been, uh, not hitting the headlines so much, but has been present there for the last eight years. And so MSF, Doctors Without Borders, has also been operational in the Ukraine uh, these past eight years as well. So when uh, February 24th came along, um, of course, a surprise to you know just about everybody, uh, but we at least had that kind of foothold uh, and that presence that we could sort of build on. Since then, um, we're up to, uh, you know, over around 600 uh, staff and working in 16 different locations across the country. Uh, Really kind of, you know, we can get more into, you know, what exactly we're doing. But I think one of the one of the biggest things right from the get go was wounded people, because one of the defining characteristics of this conflict in the Ukraine right now is a complete disrespect 
for civilians, which is of course contra- contrary to you know common morality and, 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 and but also contrary to humanitarian law or the law of war, where you're supposed to always protect civilians uh, regardless of uh, you know of the active fighting or not. And so, you know, one of the things that we've had to do almost from the get-go is start treating wounded, start supporting surgical units in hospitals, uh, supply of medical materials to hospitals, referrals. You may have heard of the train referral system that we've been using. Uh, basically, any way we can get people out of an active conflict zone and to a place where they can get medical attention. So we can go into other priorities, but that wounded and the, the, the disrespect for civilian safety is just, just horrifying in Ukraine right now. And I suppose that the, the type of injuries you're seeing are not necessarily from uh, bullets or I, I imagine you're getting shrapnel, but they must be also you know devastating injuries. I mean, we're looking at uh, apartment complexes that are being destroyed. So you're going to have those kind of earthquake type, you know what I mean? Those kinds of significant injuries. That's right. Uh, so we had a team uh, visiting a hospital in, in the eastern part of the country just uh, just a few weeks ago. Um, and while they were in the hospital, the hospital itself was bombed. Um, and, you know, your your listeners, I'm sure, were reading about the train station uh, bombing. We ha- have, we had staff in Mariupol. So before, you know, referring back to that period before February 24th, we already had staff in, in that city. And they were describing uh, what, what you're describing, Linda, which, you know, this, this kind of con- this bombardment. So less, as you say, bullets on the streets, but, but aerial bombardment of supermarkets, of hospitals, of apartment complexes. And, um, you know, and it, it, one, of, one of the staff, you know, our staff from, from that city, Mariupol, uh, literally describes how there are now new cemeteries all over, all over town in just about every neighborhood. And even in the little yard of, of, of their, you know, very near their house, there, there's a kindergarten with a yard, and that yard has now turned into a cemetery, including for, for children and people of all ages. But that, you know, it just gives you that image of just how widespread and destructive the bombing has been, and with, again, with complete disregard for civilian safety. Well, I want to talk not necessarily about that, but about the work that you're doing. And, you know, of course, we can talk about what you're seeing in Ukraine as well, because it is uh, capturing all the headlines lately. When we come back after the break, my guests today on On Target are uh, with Doctors Without Borders. They include Executive Director Joe Beliveau and Acquisition Manager Vivienne Chartrand. We'll be back right after this. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Guests today are with Doctors Without Borders. They include Executive Director Joe Beliveau and Acquisition Manager Vivienne Chartrand, and they've started their door-to-door canvassing in the St. John's region. And uh, Vivienne, this is where I want to bring you into the conversation. Um, how is uh, Doctors Without Borders and the work that they do typically funded? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. Thanks, Linda, for for asking. Um, so yeah, we are funded almost uh, or more than ninety seven percent worldwide by private uh, private individual donors and and foundations. Um, so so largely private individuals who are who are who are uh, supporting our work, um, and that's really critical. I think, as Joe was saying in the previous segment, 
um, uh, just really in supporting our, our, our flexibility and our ability to, to make decisions um, and act and bring care where, where needs are greatest um, and, and really let, let that sort of decide how we work. Um, and in Canada, um, we have actually um, more than 175,000 people each year who are supporting us. A, a good segment of those people, a large, a large chunk, are, are monthly supporters. And that the way uh, that that, um, that particular uh, style of funding supports us is that it allows for sort of regular, consistent um, funding. That means that we can plan ahead uh, for when emergencies, um, like the one that we've been talking about in Ukraine, as well as many happening around the world, uh, when those happen, we have the funding. And it also means we have ongoing um ongoing funds uh, that we know are there in order to support the the work that we do in in many other places around the world that may or may not be be in the news. So, yeah, it's really uh, Canadians are really supporting MSF's work and and monthly support particularly plays a really critical role in, in the work that we do. So you're going door to door, which, you know, has fallen out of favor in some areas, which is why sometimes people get a bit suspicious about that. But it's all cool. So why, why, why don't, sorry, why door to door? Yeah, that's a great question as well. Um, so I think, yeah, people for sure um, have different ways that they like uh, to, to make donations if they so choose to do. And, and whether they choose to do that online or, or um, that, that that's an easy way to do it um, or sometimes over the phone. I think that the, the door-to-door um, approach um, is, is really effective. I think the best, the best way that it works is that it allows for a conversation. Um, so whether that's just a conversation about um, about what we do and who we are and, and, and just sort of introducing people uh, to the work of Doctors Without Borders or if someone's willing to, to offer their support. Um, it, it does allow for that, that space and that sort of personal connection that I think is really important and, and plays a really important role in, in our fundraising program. Um, yeah, and, and so, um, yeah, I think that's what sort of people can expect. <laughs> Well, of course, and I mean, you know, you've got the the headlines now to sort of back you up on all of that, if you know what I'm saying. I mean, there are many, many conflicts and and uh, disaster zones around the world that we're, you know, the con- the ordinary person is simply not aware of. But you have the answers to all of that. You're there. <laughs> Including Ukraine these days. Um, so are there other ways to support the cause? Uh, there certainly are, yeah. Um, as I as I was saying, um, always um, you you can you can uh, go online and it's doctorswithoutborders.ca, um, and that's a way um, to make a donation. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, uh, so so certainly financially, and also even just subscribing to to our our newsletter and 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 learning more about our work is a way that you can you can follow along and understand the work that we're doing. And I think. Um, yeah, learn more about about uh, about the way ways that you can support in future as well. We're up to another break. We went long with the first one, but we're up to another break. But when we come back, uh, Joe, I want to ask you a little bit about the kind of people who get involved with uh, Doctors Without Borders and, and what uh, prompts them to do so uh, when we come back right after this. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show, midnight on your VOCM. And Doctors Without Borders canvassers are going door-to-door in the St. John's region now uh, looking for some support for the cause. My guests today are Executive Director with Doctors Without Borders in Canada, Joe Beliveau, and Acquisition Manager, Vivienne Chartrand. And I want to talk a little bit more about the work that your, uh, your many, many professionals 
professionals do, Joe? How do medical professionals get involved? Do they come to you or do you have a pool that you draw from? How does that work? They, um, yeah, they generally come to us. We do have sort of pools of uh, professionals that are kind of on, on standby. Um, but, you know, maybe just to, to zoom out and just kind of look at our staffing as a, as a whole, the, the, the vast majority uh, of, of the people we, you know, working of the 65,000 or so uh, employees that we have currently are actually coming from the places where we work. Um, so, you know, right now in, in the Ukraine, for, for example, uh, most of the most of our staff, in fact, you know, the, the humanitarian medical response in general is being led by Ukrainians. Uh, and we, as, a, as Doctors Without Borders and the international staff that would join that team, are there to, you know, provide surgical training. How do you organize an emergency room uh, for mass casualty events? Um, you know, how, uh, supplies, uh, medical supplies and so on. Um, so, so yeah, but, it, you know, if you come back then to, to Canada, um, really we have uh, people who are kind of constantly knocking on the door and, uh uh, again, it's almost always with that spirit that we talked about before. I, 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 you know, I love what Doctors Without Borders does. I want to be a part of that. Uh, uh, and, you know, and how can I get in? Do some of your missions last longer than others? I know in, in conflict, conflict zones, it's, it's hard to predict. But do some of your missions last longer than others? Oh, yeah, definitely. And, uh, you know, the, the, the missions themselves... Uh, Anywhere from a few months, maybe a punctual emergency response to, say, an extreme weather event, for example, uh, all the way up to, to many years, even even decades. Uh, we've been in Democratic Republic of Congo and, and South Sudan for, for many decades now, which is one of, you know, it, it comes back, it's one of those extreme frustrations, I think, of doing humanitarian work is that you're kind of always in this emergency response mode and yet those emergencies can be so become so chronic and you become this kind of you know feature of the of the response landscape over many many years now as far as the individuals as individual assignments just you know for your listeners to understand can range anywhere from uh, uh, a couple of months for say an emergency surgeon uh, could even be uh, weeks uh, for an emergency surgeon to be deployed up to assignments of one or even two years, uh, depending on the post and where it is and so on. What kind of uh, scopes of practice usually get involved? I mean, you've been mentioning surgeons, which, of course, would make sense in conflict zones or earthquake areas or those kinds of things. But what about areas where there are epidemics? What kind of expertise are you looking for? Yeah, right. So we have so about half uh, of of our staff are medical or paramedical, and then the rest are support staff. So administrative functions, uh, finance uh, controllers, logisticians, uh, supply experts, uh, managers like myself who just try to you know help things work. Um, and then the other half are the are the medics and you know and medics and paramedical. And you know amongst the, that group, there's a huge range. You know all the way from to surgeons, to, uh, to tropical doctors, nurses, uh, nutritionists, psychologists, mental health experts, um, you know, and pretty much the kind of the, the full range. We also, we, we do telemedicine uh, as well. It's sort of a, a newer feature of humanitarian response where, you know, in our network of uh, specialists within the telemedicine 
world is uh, is ever expanding and includes a, a huge range of medical specialists. Because you can imagine, I mean, sometimes you need an oncologist or you know a cardiologist or an internal medicine specialist uh, to uh, you know to be able to respond to really specific needs in, in specific circumstances. Uh, the logistics, when I'm thinking about it as you're speaking, it seemed to me to be overwhelming. I'm thinking about things like language barriers and just dealing with things on the ground. Every country is different. Their their um, processes are different. Uh, dealing right. with uh, military and political figures on the ground and knowing who they are and knowing who to trust and who not to trust. It just seems to me to be absolutely overwhelming. You must need to be, uh, you know, it's a special kind of person or group of people that are able to navigate all that well now you're really putting the, your finger on it uh, linda yes you know the you, just just getting access um to to where we need to work uh with with our people and with the supplies that we need is is kind of a constant challenge and and really, you know, the the world is not getting any easier in that sense, and for a number of different reasons. Uh, you know, uh, we, we referred already, we're talking about the, the conflict uh, in Ukraine, where there's this sort of disregard for the protection of civilians and sort of the active uh, targeting or at least uh, ignoring of health facilities and uh, health workers. And you know, so that that creates a, a huge set of challenges on its on its own. Just how do we duty of care? How do we make sure our staff and our people are safe if the warring parties are not respecting us and 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 keeping us safe? So you mentioned this kind of contact with uh, with different parties to conflict. It's it's a feature of how we always operate. We're always going to uh, try to talk to and negotiate with. Uh, the parties to the conflict, no matter no matter who they are and um, uh, you know what background they may have, we need their assurance to say yes, you're able to operate, and to say yes, you um, you can be here. Now, there's a whole other world of administrative and bureaucratic kind of challenges and blockages that uh, that we face, and I would say increasingly over the last years, those kinds of challenges have just gotten worse, where you know governments. Maybe they don't want want our presence so much. Take the Tigray conflict uh, in Ethiopia, where uh, you know the our presence represents and our aid to Tigrayans in that conflict. For some uh, officials, you know, represents um, uh, a taking of sides. So even though we are neutral in a conflict, that represents a taking of sides, and so they will. Uh, governments will then sometimes make life really challenging for us. Importation of uh, goods, visas, uh, travel authorizations, and so on, and we can get wrapped up in that red tape. So we have teams that are dedicated just to kind of working through that red tape. It's extraordinary, really, and I mean, I know you—you you probably bank a lot on the trust, uh, 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 you know, that surrounds your good name. But it, it must be very difficult when you're dealing with uh, entities on the ground who simply don't trust you. Well, that's right, and you know, even because Ukraine is so so present in people's minds, if we just take that that example, it's it's a really uh, delicate balance to be. Talking with you know one side, the Russians on the one side, uh, and having a presence you know in Russia, which we have had for for many many years, uh, you know, and then talking with uh, Ukrainian authorities and health officials and so on on the other side, who 
you know, who may think, hey, why are you talking to the other side? I thought you were here to help us or, you know, vice versa. And that that can be a really difficult explanation sometimes to say, look, we're we're just here to help the people who need the help. And we are not here to take a side in the conflict, um, however it may look. And, you know, and then here you touch upon our, our témoignage or our witnessing and our, and our public advocacy because a big, you know, a pillar of what we do as, as an organization is channel that frustration that I was talking about before. We witness things that are awful and we can't really change them. So we channel that into public advocacy. Now, when you speak out about atrocities or about, you know, neglect or rep- repression, whatever it is, you don't look very neutral, do you, right? Like, at least to one side, you're going to look like, hey, that's against, that's against me, and no, you know, now I don't trust you anymore, and now you can't get access to you know, the area that I control. And that's the constant dilemma that we're kind of you know, working within. It's a, f- a fine line, a fine balance to, to uh, con- constantly um, uh, have to walk, I would imagine. Well, that's it, yeah. And I mean, you know, there's, uh, you know, we sort of get that in the journalistic world as well, you know, when you're trying to report on things without appearing too unbalanced, if you know what I'm saying. My guests today on On Target are with Doctors Without Borders. They're on the ground doing some canvassing in the St. John's area. Um, Vivienne, before we go to the next break, and uh, I'll bring you into the conversation as well, but are you, are you, you, do you do your canvassing outside of St. John's and surrounding area as well, like throughout the province? Um, yeah, thanks. I think at this point, it really is St. John's and, and surrounding area, although I think that there may be some some travel beyond um, in Newfoundland um, planned for, for perhaps a little later in the in the summer. Um, yeah. And then and then we are doing that work as well all, all across Canada. <clears throat> well, good to know, because uh, people are listening right across this province, and they're probably going to wonder when they see people come to their door at some point uh, what it's all about, and hopefully they'll be well-informed by this show. When we come back, I want to uh, talk a little bit about more about the pandemic and how that's impacted what, uh, what you do uh, right after this. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your your VOCM lunch break. My guests today are with Doctors Without Borders who are canvassing in the St. John's area as we speak. Uh, they are Executive Director, Doctors Without Borders in Canada, Joe Beliveau, and Acquisition Manager, Vivienne Chartrand. And Vivienne, it seems to me that almost everybody I've spoken to um, over the last two years has been somehow affected by COVID-19. Has that affected fundraising in any way for Doctors Without Borders? Oh yeah, yeah, it, it absolutely has, and yeah, as you say, I guess it's it's really affected everything, um, and and particularly since since we're talking about our our, our campaign now and and uh, our door to door fundraising, that was an area that was certainly really impacted um, for a time, as you can imagine, uh, we were we were unable to do that at all, um, um, mainly in in 2020, and that that really did have an impact on on uh, the funds we were able to raise um, because of the importance of that work to our fundraising program, um, but but also really grateful for response from people um, who, who did ended end up um, giving anyway uh, in other ways. So so certainly online became a really important uh, way to do that. And then very grateful for the fact that we have been able to to build back uh, the program and do that in a in a in a safe way. So. 
so yeah, canvassing now um, while maintaining sort of social distancing and masking and, and non-contactless uh, ways of doing things, um, but uh, still able to carry out our work now and and, and relieved that, that that some of those um, that that or that ability is is now possible to do. And your canvassers will be easy to recognize and identify. They'll have all the appropriate things for people to see clearly that they are uh, representing who they say. Yeah. So, so yeah, that's a, a great question. And, and they'll be, so they'll be wearing sort of a white, an, MS, an MSF or a Doctors Without Borders uh, white shirt or vest. Uh, they'll have an ID badge identifying who they are and, and that they're representing us. Um, and they'll have with them a, a tablet that they'll use to, to connect, collect um, donations. Um, so yeah, they, they should be recognizable in that, in that way. <clears throat> And to answer questions, I guess, basic questions about, you know, who are you? What do you do? uh, Where are you now? What are you doing? Uh, yeah, so that yeah, they'll they'll be um, answering those types of questions um, as well as sort of yeah the importance of, of support um, um, generally and and they can certainly also direct people um, online where where they can learn more too. Joe, did uh, COVID nineteen cause any problems? In the work that you do, trying to get around for for one, I would imagine was was hugely impacted. Oh yeah, uh, you know I think um, like like everybody, it was sort of an unprecedented uh, ex- experience. And as a kind of you know emergency medical responder organization, um, we faced this situation where more or less simultaneously medical needs jumped in in more or less all of the places that we were already working around the world so not only did we you know have to pivot and continue to respond in all of the places and ways uh, that we were already doing but then add this layer of uh, of, of covid response and, uh, and, and 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 precautions all the precautions and protections that went with operating in in a, in a covid environment and then on top of that um, you, there, the, this pandemic was unfolding in Canada and all of all of the uh, countries uh, around the world that we don't normally operate in, and our phone was ringing, and you know, in long-term care facilities or uh, homeless shelters, uh, people were unsure about how do you organize yourselves to protect against uh, COVID-19. This is back in the early days before the vac- vaccine. You know, how do you how do you set up a facility that that you know that we can handle this somehow, uh, triaging excuse me triaging patients, <clears throat> pardon me, and so on. And so you know we actually for the first and only time ever in MSF's history had an operational response here in Canada. Now it was modest and it was advisory. You know we were responding to all those institutions and uh, and providing our advice about how you do. Uh, infection prevention control and, and, and so on. But that was happening simultaneously in many parts of the world as we were already responding to, you know, the current uh, needs of people. And then the third layer on top of that was um, all the restrictions. So all of a sudden, uh, you know, a Canadian doctor couldn't just get on an airplane and, and fly to uh, South Sudan uh, anymore. Um, uh, or it was very difficult to do that. Same with uh, importations and you know travel in general, just you know ground almost to a halt. So we were having major supply issues uh, on top of it. So it was really this kind of crazy triple whammy of uh, you know just trying to work through it. And 
and you know in the end we managed uh, but but it was big I would imagine. And in some of the places that where you were on the ground, also dealing with the, with the spread of illness in, in those areas on top of what you're already there for. Well, that's right. And I think that's one of the big storylines, too, is uh, and we're starting to, with a little bit of hindsight, of course, we're not out of the pandemic, right? But uh, with a, a bit of hindsight, we're able to just look backwards a little bit and realize that in places like Central African Republic, a colleague of mine just, just returned from there, uh, you know, and, and describes how the diversion of resources, um, because all of a sudden there was this, this massive global attention. And so ministries of health that were already under-resourced were being, you know, obl- obligated to kind of divert some of their resources toward the COVID response. But when you're in such a resource-limited uh, setting, that means you're not doing your TB response anymore, or you're not uh, doing some basic healthcare or malaria response uh, and so on. And so that, that price tag, I think, is a little bit invisible uh, in this whole uh, you know, COVID pandemic experience, but it's, it's very, very significant. Well, indeed, did you incur greater costs through that period? Yeah, we, we certainly did incur greater costs. I think that's not, you know, as Doctors Without Borders, um, you know, we also, Vivian alluded to it, uh, we, we faced some fundraising challenges. On the, on the other hand, people were, were very generous, especially sort of in those early months of, uh, of, of the pandemic. And, uh, you know, and so we were able to kind of raise funds and, and sort of from a funding perspective, um, uh, rise to the challenge. But our, our challenges were, you know, were less on the, on the financial side. But how can we just juggle all these different balls? How do we continue to respond to the malaria and the TB and the HIV AIDS and the war wounded and so on? And then also layer on this, uh, the, the, this COVID response and working with, local actors and Ministry of Health uh, professionals in those contexts to try to, like, you know, pick up some of the slack. It was just it was just this major uh, juggling act. And maybe, you know, I can maybe piggyback on this just to also uh, raise kind of the the notion of vaccine equity, because once the vaccine started to be, you know, come online and be be rolled out, which was just a tremendous human achievement to to roll, you know, develop a vaccine that that quickly, you know, really early on, we were starting to feel like, uh oh, uh, how is this going to work in terms of uh, equity, you know, vaccine equity around the world? And, and indeed, that's one of the other issues that, uh, that we faced head on, uh, where a lot of countries, even to now, you know, were not able to get access to the, to the vaccines, whereas wealthier countries were. And this is not in any way to say that, uh, you know, any of us here... Uh, <clears throat> shouldn't have gotten, you know, access to the vaccine. Absolutely should. It's that people elsewhere also should have. And, and that didn't happen. And that speaks to kind of a, a brokenness, I think, in the, in, the, in, the, in the system of pharmaceuticals and vaccine production and vaccine distribution that still exists out there. Uh, excellent point. Uh, Vivian, um, how can people support the cause? Yeah, thanks, Linda. Um, they they can support the cause uh, by going to doctorswithoutborders.ca and, and uh, choosing to support us, um, follow along on our work, uh, follow us on social media. And um, yeah, if if they they are speaking with with someone, one of our representatives, also um, by by donating through one of one of them and engaging with them and hopefully having a very good conversation more about our work. And if you get a knock on the door, give you give them your support. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you. Um, uh, Joe, a final word goes to you. 
Well, with a final word, let me let me say two things then. One is uh, I know that um, uh, just a couple of days ago, a plane of Ukrainians arrived in, uh, in St. John's. So um, I'm sure that uh, that sort of really makes that, that conflict more real for people and also, you know, makes people feel much more connected. And I'll just say uh, congratulations. I think it's a wonderful thing. And I think any time a community is able to welcome uh, refugees uh, in, into their midst, that's, that's every bit as humanitarian as what uh, Doctors Without Borders uh, does so I think that's great and maybe the last thing is uh, this happens to be National Nurses Week um, so I just want to do a, a huge shout out to all of the um, MSF nurses around the world doing the, doing their work and of course to all the nurses uh, there in St. John's and in Newfoundland and across Canada doing their work too it simply wouldn't be possible without nurses <laughs> and all healthcare yeah. professionals, for that matter. Uh, Joe Bellivo and Vivienne Chartrand, Doctors Without Borders, I really appreciate your time this afternoon. Thank you very much. Thank you, Linda. Thank you. And uh, both of them uh, alluded to the uh, conflict in Ukraine, of course, uh, the war there and um, some of the impacts that that's had on um, the entire world. Well, we've been talking a lot about those impacts, uh, the price of gas for one, the cost of living uh, and inflation. Uh, we're going to break some of that down for you tomorrow with uh, Larry Short. So stay tuned for that. Uh, thanks for listening, everyone.